Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments in our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Radil and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax and listen as we delve into episode two, The Abominable Murder of Lord Darnley. It's the early hours of the 10th of February, 1567, and a huge explosion rocks the city of Edinburgh. The watch rushes to the scene of the blast, where two things quickly become clear. First, the explosion has taken place at Kirkerfield House, where the Queen's husband, Lord Darnley, was residing. Second, there is nothing left but smoke and rubble. Scouring the ground for clues, the searchers make their way to the garden, where they find the bodies of two men, in nothing but their nightshirts. The bodies show no sign of the bruising, smoke or the dirt you'd expect from being involved in a blast and thrown 40 feet. What's immediately obvious to the searchers is that the bodies belong to Lord Darnley and his servant William Taylor. They're dead, but not from the blast. This is murder. Born in the West Riding of Yorkshire in 1545 to the powerful and ambitious Lennox family, Henry Stuart, later known as Lord Darnley, was connected to the Tudor dynasty through his maternal lineage. It was this ancestry that saw him grow into an entitled and reckless young man, who was described by one courtier as lusty, beardless and lady-faced. Yet, in many ways, the story of Lord Darnley's demise begins with his marriage to Mary, Queen of Scots, in 1565. The marriage took place in a world of politicking and power, where the Scottish lords were frequently at odds with each other, and at the centre of it all was the 22-year-old Queen, Mary. Across the border to the south, Elizabeth I had been ruling England, Ireland and Wales for almost seven years. I speak to Professor Kate Williams about the sequence of events that led to Darnley's death. Kate, thank you for joining me on this brand new podcast. Well, I'm thrilled to be on. I'm very excited. Thank you so much. So kind of you. You're a historian, an academic, a broadcaster, but most importantly for this, you're the author of Rival Queens, your non-fiction book about Mary, Queen of Scots and Elizabeth I. So today we're going to be talking about the death of Lord Darnley on the 10th of February 1567. So first of all, I just wanted to start off by talking about the period and, you know, what Scotland was like at this time. So we know in England that Elizabeth was on the throne, but could you describe Scotland and the situation there? Well, England and Scotland were two separate countries. And, you know, what we saw was quite a different setup. So obviously, in England, you have Elizabeth, it's the rule of law. In Scotland, when Mary Queen of Scots came to the throne, you know, she's a child. Her father died, leaving her queen at six days old. And really, throughout her youth, when she was sent to France, she's off centre. And all the lords in Scotland really get very used to doing what they want. They get really used to doing their own thing. And when Mary comes back in the age of 18 and expects to be queen, they think she's going to be their puppet. That sets up a massive 
political battle between her half-brother, James Stewart, the illegitimate son of her father, who really had been ruling the roost and expected Mary to be his puppet queen, and with Mary herself. So it becomes this massive battle to keep power. And in this mix, we have Lord Darnley as well. So who is he and how did he come to marry Mary, Queen of Scots? Well, Lord Darnley is terribly handsome and on paper... He is the perfect husband for Mary. He does have a claim to the English throne himself because his grandmother is daughter of Henry VII. So Mary and he and any child of theirs would have a much stronger claim to the English throne. So Mary decides to marry Lord Darnley. He's handsome, he's royal, on paper, it's great. And he plays a good game of pretending he's desperately in love with her and... Unlike all the other men, he loves her for her, not her power. It's a whirlwind romance. They're having this great time. They used to go out in disguise because they're both tall and very good-looking. They used to go out in disguise as ordinary people. And I think it's hilarious. You know, Marie Antoinette does that, doesn't she? I love it how monarchs <laughs> think it's so think they can go out in disguise and everyone won't recognise them. Oh, my goodness, who are those two people? Oh, my gosh, yeah. Well, Charles did it. Well, both the Charleses did it, didn't they, as well? They thought, oh, you know, it's fine. Let's play dress-up. No one will know. Let's dress no up as a washerwoman. Yeah, it's, isn't it fun? <laughs> so they get married and... I'm afraid to say that not long after the marriage, he really starts to demand power. He wants to be king, so it's king and queen. And this sets mm. him on a sort of road to conflict with the lords around Mary. I do think it's important sometimes when you're talking about people in the past to remember just how young they actually were. Because on the night that he was murdered, Mary was, what, 24, 25? And Darnley was... Yes, he well, he's not twi- older, he's, he's about 21, he's isn't he? He's 21, 22. so he's incredibly young. So Darnley lives a million lives by the age of 21. He marries Mary, Queen of Scots in 1565, when he's nearly 20. And then <laughs> then she gets pregnant, and then they really... Um, well, they fall out pretty quickly. And then we have the Rizzio plot... David Rizzio was the Queen's musician and close confidant, who'd been promoted to private secretary. Erroneous rumours had been circulating that he was in fact the father of her unborn baby, and he became the target of not just Darnley's envy and frustration, but a number of other Scottish lords too. Things reached fever pitch on the night of Saturday the 9th of March 1566, when a group of lords, including Darnley, stormed into the Queen's chamber and brutally murdered him in front of her. In the frenzy, Rizzio was reportedly stabbed 50-odd times by the group, and the six-months-pregnant queen feared for her own life. Mary described how they... ...most cruelly took him forth of our cabinet, and at the entry of our chamber gave him 56 strokes with wenyards and swords. Darnley had sought to not just be the husband of the queen, but a king to boot, and his ambitions were fast falling apart. The English ambassador noted how... This queen repenteth her marriage, that she hateth him and all his kin. I asked Professor Kate Williams how the birth of their son in June 1566 changed the situation. Mary has her baby, but then the relationship really starts to deteriorate. Partly because, of course, now Mary has a son, she can be deposed. And that's the problem with having a son as a queen, isn't it? That... 
the Lord can depose her and say that we're going to be regents for the baby. So they start to really disagree. And also the lords around Mary really come to hate Darnley. They they think that he's going to seize their lands. He threatens that he, he gets he gets very powerful. He's going to take everything from them. So you are, start to see this build-up of tension, really, between the lords who keep saying to Mary divorce him and she can't and then they start to say oh they'll sort him out they'll deal with him and James Stewart Mary's half-brother who pulls all the strings he'll look through his fingers at it and this is just unprecedented and Mary says no but really I think the lords think that he's a problem they think that they could probably push Mary aside and put mm. the baby on the throne but they can't push him aside because he's so power hungry so Darnley becomes the problem that all of these Scottish lords who want power they want to get rid of him so they all kind of like galvanize around Darnley then I guess it kind of ignites this uh, unity in them against him in a way but d- tell me about the night of the incident we know that his body was found in Kirker Fields but where was this and why was he there well, he was in Kirkerfield, which is a house not far from Holyrood. And he was in this house because he'd had, we had smallpox, or maybe some thought it might have been syphilis, and then Mary brought him to Kirkerfield. So she was at Holyrood, and she went to a wedding of one of her servants. And so she went to visit him, went back to Holyrood to her palace for the wedding, and then the whole place was blown up. There is this amazing map that the English spies made it's just incredible. It's in the National Archives now. And it's just amazing to look at it up front. They got it out for me. And as you can see, the house is blown to smithereens. Everything around it is blown to smithereens. But interestingly, Darnley and his servant were found smothered in a nearby orchard. As you say, this document, and if anybody is listening to this podcast, it's worth, just having, quick... <laughs> it's worth just having a quick Google and just having a look at this thing because it's so detailed but it looks like in some ways that it's been drawn by a child doesn't it <laughs> but, um, it's just you can see where everything is and you can kind of as you say you can kind of try and work things out yourself as to what happened well the map is just amazing but it does have a strange perspective and it's not entirely objective shall we say it's definitely written mm. for the english market we have baby james Mary and Lord Darnley's son sitting up in bed demanding vengeance when he's only eight months old. So, uh, <laughs> so, so it's rather poetic and it gets a bit Cluedo really because in this orchard with them is a chair, a knife, a rope and two dressing gowns and they're in their nightshirts. So what I think happened is that Darnley and his servant heard the baddies coming for him. They were going to kill him and blow the place up and they use the chair and the rope to get out of the window but they were smothered in the orchard and uh, died at the hands of these ruffians who blew up the house so it would have been the perfect crime everyone would say oh well the house blew up oh well you know Mm. never know things blow up don't they but I think the fact is that Darnley and his servant dead in the orchard revealed to the all of Europe that he'd been murdered. James Stewart who is the puppet master behind everything he suddenly disappears just very few hours before the murder, he has to leave town because his wife is ill. So I think that's pretty suspicious that he wasn't around when he normally was. So uh, Elizabeth... That is suspicious. It's very <laughs> suspicious. Elizabeth says, Mary, you have to prosecute this. You've got to find culprits. But Mary is completely lost. I mean, she knows who it is. It's her half-brother. It's the lords around her. That's who it is. But what's she going to do? How can she take them to court? 
There was also a very real concern that the explosion had been meant for Mary as well, as she wrote. The matter is so horrible and strange. As we believe the like was never heard of in any country, there is nothing remaining. No, not a stone above another. Whoever have taken this wicked enterprise in hand, we assure ourselves it was dressed always for us as for the king. For we lay the most part of all the last week in that same lodging. Elizabeth was so stunned by the events that she wrote an impassioned letter to Mary on the 24th of February, two weeks after the murder, urgently pleading with her to prosecute the guilty men. Madame, my ears have been so shocked, my understanding so broken and my heart so frightened to hear the awful news of the abominable murder of your husband and my slaughtered cousin that I can barely write. I exhort, I counsel, I beg you deeply to take this to heart. Is there anything in terms of first-hand accounts? I mean, I know we've got this map of the scene of the crime, but is there anything else that we can look to as historians to try and piece together what happened? What, of course, Mary should have done after this is put some servants on trial. That's what everyone normally does at the time, but she refuses to. So and she starts being suspected and there are posters put up against her that she suspected what's happened, who killed him, why aren't you investigating it? And the reason why she's not investigating it is because she knows it's the lords around her. What's she supposed to do? You know, they've held power over her. How is she supposed to expose them? Eventually, there is a trial of Lord Bothwell, who was part of the, the lordly group, and we think put the gunpowder in. It was a bit of a show trial, but a lot of documents do come out of there. These women who live by the orchard, they heard ruffians going past them. It does seem to me, when you look at many of the great crimes in history, of which I put Lord Darnley's murder in there, that so many of these are bungled and full of mistakes. I think we, you know, we like to imagine criminals as having these evil masterminds but this one was was kind of chaos on one hand it is the most bungled benny hill kind of crime you can imagine with all these slightly drunk aristocrats wandering around looking for the person they're supposed to murder and on the other hand it's this actually quite successful murder because it means that everyone who was involved never has to pay the price is there any evidence or do you have any inclination as to who actually committed the physical act of murder on darnley we don't know who actually did it. This was a varied group. We think that some of the lords were in it and also some of their servants. So exactly who did the final act on Darnley and his servant, exactly who did smother them, it's not known. But I would say it seems to me very likely that um, there were quite a few people involved in pinning Darnley down, pinning his servant down and smothering him. So it was... A group effort. So Mary, I mean, was she culpable? Is that a ridiculous question? Did she have any involvement at all in this? I think it's very clear she didn't know anything about it. She did hate him, but she heard people saying, let's get rid of him, which she just ignored. And of course, she was terrified because she thought after she heard he'd been blown up, that they were going to kill her as well. She thought she was under threat. The thing is, it is disastrous for her, but after Lord Bothwell is put on trial, he's found not guilty. But to a degree, it's a show trial that really calms a lot of the unrest. A trial has happened. Yeah. So I think after that, pretty much Mary could have made a stab at continuing on the throne after that. She has her son. She's the mother of the future king. She can continue. But what happens after that is that she is seized by Lord Bothwell. He assaults her 
forces her to marry him. And then after that, everyone hates her because they think she's married the suspected murderer of her husband. So that's the end of her reign. The lords move in to try and depose her, imprison her, make her force her to abdicate. And then after that, she flees to England. Well, I was going to ask, you know, what the lasting damage of this murder was to Mary's reputation. But as you've intimated already, it seems that the Bothwell marriage played a much larger role in her demise in a way. So the actual murder, I don't think people do think it's her. It's marrying Lord Bothwell that angered the people so much. That's what people think is beyond the pale, really, because they think, why have you married him? You know, he's suspected of killing your husband. Why Why have you done this? There was a very famous placard put up about Mary by Lord Darnley's family in which she's compared to a mermaid. There's a picture of her. She's like a mermaid. And obviously, we all love mermaids now. We think they're magical, but mermaids at the time, that meant a courtesan. And the mermaid is topless, so they're slurring the queen as a topless courtesan and they're saying that she's in love with Bothwell. So it really does seem as if, as if although there was great horror and shock and disgust that a lot of people knew there were shenanigans going on behind the scenes, didn't necessarily blame the queen for it. And it wasn't until she took the shocking step to the populace of marrying Bothwell that her reputation was permanently damaged. Thank you, Kate. That's so, so interesting. I mean, it's a sad story, you know, when you discuss anything to do with somebody's death, but it just feels there's an added tragedy to um, the story of Mary, Queen of Scots that I don't think... Well, I think only recently we've been starting to appreciate because she's often been painted in a certain way in public imagination. And your your book, Rival Queens, is amazing and on sale and everybody that's listening, you can go and buy it now. The murder map we're talking about, the mermaid picture, all of these pictures I talked about are in my book, Rival Queens. It's 99p on Kindle at the moment, so it's very cheap at the moment. There you go, no excuses. <laughs> I love murder, historical murder, and who killed Lord Darnley is an absolutely fascinating question. After the acquittal of Bothwell, a soldier named William Blackadder was scapegoated for the murder. He was hanged, drawn and quartered in June 1567. But what happened to the other players in this 16th century psychodrama? Well, Lord Darnley was buried within the royal vault of Holyrood Abbey, but he was to have little peace. His skull was stolen from the vault in the 18th century and eventually made its way to the Royal College of Surgeons Museum in England, where it was identified in 2016. Perhaps his most important legacy was to be the father of Mary's son, James VI of Scotland, and the first of England and Ireland. Bothwell fled to Scandinavia shortly after his marriage to Mary and was imprisoned, dying at the age of just 44. As for Mary, Queen of Scots, well, she was famously executed 20 years later in 1587, but that's a topic for another podcast. Thank you for listening. It's